Good morning. I'm glad for these covers that don't show us the winding line outside Miss Shirley's <laughs> that remind us of our own frail humanity. This morning I want to start with two questions. The first of which will seem like I'm questioning your intelligence, but I'm not really. The first one is a setup for the second question. If you are a parent or want to be a parent or desire to be a parent, would you want your child to grow up to be like Mother Teresa or like Hitler? Well, I mean, yes, this is a ridiculous question. But just, I don't know, just for fun, is anybody that wants their kid like Hitler? Okay. If, you, if, if there is, we have a special prayer, uh, Joey. <laughs> Joey will lead a special prayer. Which leads me to my second question. The first one was pretty obvious. And most people, if not all people, whether they're Christians or not, would choose their kid to be like Mother Teresa as opposed to Hitler. Obviously, maybe you don't want your kid to be in the slums in Calcutta, but at least the mindset of Mother Teresa. Let me ask the second question, why? Why would we choose that? Why would we choose something that's holy versus something that's evil? Where did we get the idea that holiness or good is better than evil? We did not get it from Hindu belief because in, in Hinduism, God is not seen as holy. We didn't get it from Islamic beliefs because in Islam, Allah is the beneficent and the, and the merciful one. He, yes, there is a name for Allah where he's called the Holy One, but that's more in theory, not in practice. It's not from a secular atheistic viewpoint because there is no God and they think that humans are holy and that's not true as we will see shortly. Where did we get the idea that good is better or holy is better than evil? It comes from the Judeo-Christian viewpoint or worldview that in which the holiness of God is paramount. The holiness of God is paramount. In fact, the attribute of the holiness of God undergirds all other attributes of God. So there is holy love. The love of God is seen as holy. Even the anger of God is seen as holy anger. The Christian God is a holy God and because he is holy, he gives us the command to be holy. And in our text this morning, which is in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, it says, Be holy because I am holy. And that verse is repeated in the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, it says the same thing. Be holy because I am holy. God wanted his people to be holy because he is holy. And so he gives them some laws so that they can be holy. This morning in a sermon entitled, The Problem of Being, I'm going to look through five chapters, Leviticus chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, in which there are four sets of laws that I have combined into three parts. So I've combined it into three subheadings, and we will look at some principles of these laws. These are ritualistic laws, not moralistic laws. And because they are ritualistic laws, these laws don't apply to us today. But I'm going to look at some principles from these laws that we can apply today. I've divided the sermon into three parts. In the first part, we will look at the difference from others. In the second part, 
at fellowship with God. And in the third part, we will look at the problem of being. The problem of being. First, let's look at the difference from others. One of the reasons, or one reason why God established these laws was to show a difference between the people of Israel and their neighbors. Under this come the dietary laws in which you are unclean for hours. So if you read those chapters in Leviticus chapter 11 and 12, it talks about clean and unclean animals. And it goes into significant detail of what is a clean animal, what is an unclean animal. If it has a split hoof, it is an unclean animal. If it's, a, if it's got a partially split hoof, it's unclean. I mean, that, there's so many details to this. That's where Judaism follows the, the rule that pork is bad because pigs are unclean based on those two chapters. And from there, Islam gets the law about pork being bad as well. But these laws don't apply to us, right? It's not like the animals themselves were evil. It's not like the pork was evil. Because if the, if the pig was evil, then it would be evil today, right? What was the first law given by God? What was the first law given by God? I heard a whisper. The first law given by God? Love the Lord your God is the greatest commandment. What's the first commandment given by God? First law? What's that? You shall not eat of the fruit. That's correct. Absolutely correct. You were, you were doubtful, but yeah. The first law. The first law was a dietary law, right? Don't eat from the fruit from the tree of good and evil. So it's not like there was anything inherently wrong about that tree. There was nothing evil about the tree. It was a law because God deemed it so. And so these laws don't apply to us anymore because they are ritualistic laws. And in Mark chapter 7, verse 15 and 19, Jesus said, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. So there's no dietary law from the Bible today. But obedience to these laws would work in that culture because God wanted those people, the people of Israel, to be different from their neighbors. It would work as a deterrent from Israel marrying with its neighbors. And the surrounding people were extremely wicked. The neighbors surrounding the people of Israel were extremely wicked. That's why when God says, go and destroy your neighbors, to the people of Israel, he wants them annihilated because they were extremely wicked. There was history of cannibalism, there was history of child sacrifice, and various kinds of perversions that the neighboring people of Israel were doing. And God did not want intermarriage with them. Let's say some of you are dating and hopefully for marriage, and maybe there was somebody that was dating in the recent past and got married, or thinking about dating. When you're dating, what you're trying to find out is if the person you are dating is compatible with you, right? I mean, that's pretty much what you're trying to find out. And you go with two lists, whether you're aware of it or not, there are two lists that you go with. One is a non-negotiable list. 
And then there is a negotiable list, right? There are two lists that you go with when you go into dating, when you try to meet somebody to find out if they're compatible or not. Give me an example, if you're dating today or been dating in the recent past, or if you want to date in the future, I guess, that includes everybody. Um, give me an example of something from your non-negotiable list. Non-negotiable. Cannot be a Pittsburgh fan. Cannot be a Pittsburgh fan. Wow, that's, 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 a, that's a significant non-negotiable. Yeah. It's that or celibacy. <laughs> Tell me something from your negotiable list. Tell me something from your negotiable list. That would be non-negotiable. I don't know. Is it your negotiable for you? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just... <laughs> something from your negotiable. Well, if, if you meant it as a non-negotiable, that's great. Yeah, has to love the Lord, that's your non-negotiable. Anything from your negotiable list that you think, well, you know, I can negotiate on this, not a big deal. What's that? Likes the beach. Likes the beach. Likes the beach versus likes the mountain. That's great. Well, if you marry somebody that doesn't like the beach, it's okay. I mean, you know. You can just sneak off with your girlfriends to the beach and go with your husband to the mountains. So there are negotiables and non-negotiables. And, and if you're an 18-year-old, you know, it kind of vacillates. If you see a good movie or read a good book, then you have all the non-negotiables. I mean, this guy has to be the perfect guy on every single count, and nothing is negotiable. But then you meet reality, and then you find that everything is negotiable for you at that point. I mean, you have no non-negotiables. But somewhere along the way, you will find out that you need a balance between the non-negotiables and the negotiables. So if there was a young Jewish male wanting to date a young Philistine woman, for example, one of the non-negotiables would be the dietary laws. There was no negotiating on that. The Jews used their laws to show differences from their neighbors. How do we show our differences today? How would we show our differences today? Is there any difference between you and your non-Christian neighbor? Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 and 17 reads, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. You are not to do whatever you want, because what we want is the flesh, and the flesh opposes the spirit. So if you became a new believer and you are similar to your non-Christian neighbor or friend or colleague or classmate. If you are following the spirit, you are headed one way. And if your non-Christian friend is following the flesh, they are headed the other way. At the time of your conversion, there is probably not much difference. But over time, there needs to be a difference. It's not like your friend is going on 95 North and you became a Christian and you deviate to 695 East. That's not it. 
If your friend is on 95 north, you are going 95 south. It's opposite. And therefore, over time, the differences should be even greater. How can we be different? How, are, how should we be different? It's not in the external anymore. Those days, you ate meat, I did not eat meat. You ate pork, I didn't eat pork. You, you did this, I didn't do that. Today, it is all in the internal, right? We are different than our non-Christian friends in the internal. Yes, there are external manifestations, but it is primarily internal. How are we different than our neighbors, or is there a difference at all? If there is no difference, it means that even though we say we are following the spirit, we are actually following our flesh and going along with our neighbors. Let me give you some examples of internal things that we should be different. How about forgiveness? How about in our forgiving of other people? Are we similar to our non-believing friends that have not experienced the unlimited, unconditional forgiveness that we ourselves have received? How about in peace in hard circumstances. If we are aware of the sovereignty of God who is in control of our circumstances and in control of our universe and in control of my life, then I should be more at peace than my neighbor who is a non-Christian and does not know about the sovereignty of God. How about in chastity and purity and sexual morality? If there is no difference between us and our non-Christian neighbor, we are following the flesh. A good starting point is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 that talk about the Sermon on the Mount that show numerous examples of differences that we would have, internal differences that we would have. The second principle that I want to bring up is about fellowship with God. The first set of laws was dietary laws that made you unclean for hours. This is gestationary laws that make you unclean for months. Gestationary laws, this includes death, childbirth, and other discharges that for the love of God I'm not going to describe. <laughs> you guys can read it up. The main issue had to do with life and death. You're walking along the side of the road and for some reason you saw a dead deer and for whatever reason you decide to touch it. And you go and touch it, now you're unclean. And you're unclean, therefore you have to wash your clothes, bathe with water and you're clean again. And then it relates also to childbirth. Childbirth. And uh, if you touch blood that is unclean, you become unclean because blood is symbolic of life and blood is supposed to be inside the body not outside the body so if you are touching blood it's kind of not right therefore you are unclean the interesting thing about this set of laws is that being unclean prevents you from coming into the temple and worshiping God okay so if you are a mother that gave birth you're unclean for one to two months you are unclean, but not sinful, right? Childbirth is not a sinful thing, but you're still unclean. 
even though you're not sinful and you still can't enter the temple for one to two months even though you're not sinful we are involved in many things many of them perfectly legitimate things and yet those legitimate things can keep us from the presence of God in the Old Testament the foreigners could not walk into the temple at any point the people of Israel could not walk into the temple at any point the priests could not walk into the inner sanctum at any point only the high priest and that once a year so that's one person in an entire country once a year with sacrifices goes into the most holy place the inner sanctum of the temple where God's presence is but in the New Testament because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ we can access the presence of God at any point and that's why there is this verse that says in 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 17 pray continually pray continually this command would have been unheard of in Israel at that time pray continually going into the temple was a big deal you had to bring sacrifices not anybody could do it it was a lot of people involved there was a mediator and there were other things involved for them to pray it was not a practice to pray continually but because we have been given access to God and the privilege to come into his presence at any time we are actually commanded to stay in his presence and pray continually since we have this privilege of being in the presence of God at any point what activity are we involved in that prevents us from being in his presence it may be a legitimate activity a non sinful activity and yet it can keep us from the presence of God there are many examples let me give you one example what I will call as a time killer we have so many time killers that grab our lives and the usual reason why we don't have regular Bible reading why we don't have regular prayer time why we don't have family prayer while we don't come for ministry opportunities is because we are too busy right too busy or I don't have time but we have time for what is important to us we have time for what's important to us let me give you an example let's say you went to your doctor for your next physical checkup and they were doing a head-to-toe checkup and as your primary care doctor was palpating your abdomen he found a compressible lesion in the top part of your abdomen and so they take a CT scan and they find out it's a abdominal aortic aneurysm what is called as a triple A and just FYI if you have a triple A it needs to be at least five centimeters in width for them to operate on it if it's less than that they don't operate on it so let's say that your triple A was 4.5 centimeters they're not going to operate on it instead what your doctor is going to say is come every six months or a year we'll take a CT scan and see how big it is if it reaches five centimeters we will operate on it if not we will just watch it and if it's not treated and it bursts you can die in a few minutes so what are you going to do 
So if your doctor says, come every six months, are you going to say, no, no time. I've got to take my kids for basketball. No, you will make time. You see, because that is important to you. If, the, if your doctor says, come every three months for a CT scan, you are going to be there and you, because that is important to you. If a person says, I don't have time to spend in God's presence because I don't have time, I'm too busy, ladies and gentlemen, it is not important to us. We also spend time on what we love. We spend time on what we love. And you've heard this old cliche that says, love is spelt T-I-M-E. Right? You will spend time on what you love. If you want to know what you love, see what you spend time on, and you will know what you love. I want to completely change that. And this is my suggestion. Since love is an act of the will. Choose what you want to love and spend time on it. So list out all the things that are in your life. God, church, family, wife, husband, extended family, neighbors, kids, friends. List them all out. Then choose what you want to love and what you want important in your life and make time for it. Everything else is secondary. A part of my initial years in, in the US, I spent in Boston for my studies. And so, because I started watching sports there, most of my sports teams are from Boston. Not Pittsburgh or anybody else, but Boston. Hopefully it's not a non-negotiable. <laughs> and so last year of the 162 games that the Boston Red Sox played I had the TV on every evening in my living room at low volume that was my excuse oh, yeah, it's low volume you know it doesn't it's, it's not a disturbance to anybody but you know that if your TV is on you're gonna watch it I mean whether you want to watch it or not that's the focus of attention you're gonna watch it so this year, what I thought was, even though the Red Sox won the World Series last year and they were the champions, this year I thought, you know, that was a complete waste of my time. Three hours for 162 days. Completely wasted my time. Wasted my life. So this year I completely cut that off. Not one day was baseball playing. I mean, it's not even like I could watch three hours of that mind-numbing, boring game where it's swing and a miss, swing and a miss, swing and a miss, and then after two and a half hours, the score is 1-0. Oh my God. I know you're a baseball fan, um, Astros fan. I mean, there is fans. Great. Just couldn't watch it. So I just cut it off. Cut it off. And I'm great now. I mean, I, I've got all this time every evening throughout the summer to spend with my kids. What is it in your life that is a time killer for you? What is a time killer in your life that you need to cut off? If you let life come to you, you will have no time for God. None. It will get completely crowded out with everything else. If you don't make time for God, you will have zero time for God. 
The third principle that I want to point out is the problem of being. The first one was a dietary law. The second one was a gestationary law. The third one is an integumentary law in which you're unclean for years. This includes people with skin diseases that were infected skin diseases. If you had an infected skin disease, you were sent outside the camp just like in days past for quarantining the sufferer. So in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45 through 46, it reads, Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes. Let their hair be unkempt. Cover the lower part of their face and cry out, Unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. There was no treatment. You lived outside the camp alone until either somehow miraculously you got healed or sometimes you did not get healed many times they did not get healed they were they lived there for the rest of their lives and that is why we can understand this part of the verse that says you must wear torn clothes let your hair be unkempt cover the lower part of your face why why do that when you touched a carcass you didn't do that when you touch blood, you didn't do that. Why, for this, do you need to cover the lower part of your face and let your hair be unkempt? Because these were displays associated with mourning. Let me read you one verse, Genesis chapter 37, verse 34. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. It was a sign of mourning. There are numerous verses in scripture that show the covering of the lower part of the face, unkempt sackcloth, and tearing of the robes as a sign of mourning. This was a death sentence if you were unclean this way. I have patients sent to me by different primary care physicians with some kind of a growth on the face or mouth or jaws. And they tell the patient, go to so-and-so, and he will do a biopsy. So they come to me, I look at them, and I tell them that, that we need to do a biopsy. And when I say that, if it's a small enough lesion, I cut the whole thing out, send it to the lab for histopathological analysis. If it's a large lesion, I take a small piece of it, what is called as an incisional biopsy, send it to the lab. I tell them, come back in seven days, let's take a look what it is. And I can tell you that when they come back in seven days, they have not slept for seven days because they are thinking of cancer. And many times I can I have the privilege of telling them, um, this is so-and-so, this is just a benign thing, it's not cancer, it's great, come back in a checkup you know, in, in, in a year and you're fine. But sometimes, unfortunately, I've got the misfortune to say, Mrs. Mrs. So-and-so, this is cancer. And that's a death sentence for them because from that point on, their life is changed. It's like they're going into mourning. So when a person has a skin disease, he goes into mourning and he's banished outside the city. The other laws, well, the laws that we saw earlier prohibited a person from doing something. Okay, so if you touch a carcass, don't touch the carcass. Well, when you walk along the side of the road, next time you see a dead deer, don't touch the dead deer. Okay, that was the thing. Don't touch the dead deer. Then you won't be unclean. What about this law? 
where you have a skin disease. You see, it was not a problem of doing, it was a problem of being. They had the disease. They didn't have to do anything for it. They had it. Since it was an issue of being, it could not be fixed by doing something. It's an issue of being. You can't fix it. If you touched a carcass and you became unclean, the remedy for that had nothing to do with the carcass. You came, you brought an animal for a sacrifice, you washed your clothes, you bathed with water, you're clean again. Has nothing to do with the carcass itself. But if it's a problem of being, you cannot do anything to solve it. In the spiritual realm, this is the issue with us. We are not holy people at the core that do an occasional wrong. We are sinful people at the core that do an occasional right. And this is one of the differences between the Christian faith and secular humanistic thinking. Secular humanistic thinking says we are angels at the core. And the Bible says no, we're not. John Phillips in his book Explaining Romans writes these words, Man's power to think lifts him above the beasts of the field, yet at the same time it is strangely clouded to spiritual realities, for despite his genius in so many realms, man betrays a most remarkable denseness when it comes to the things of God. His mind, incisive in so many ways, is warped and twisted when it comes to eternal and spiritual issues. The damaged, wrought by sin runs deep into the very roots of the thinking processes of man. His imaginations are often filthy, his memories often betray him, his deductions are often false, and his conclusions are often wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because at the core we are sinners. It is a problem of being and no amount of doing can fix it. And that is the difference between the Christian faith and every other religion. A problem of being cannot be fixed by doing and yet religion after religion does things to fix the problem of being. If we have a problem of being, the only thing that can fix a problem of being is by changing the being from the inside out. But how can our being be changed? Who can change our being? Let's very quickly look at this interaction that Jesus had with the leper. And there is a very key phrase in this passage. And as I read it, I want you to pick it out because if you blink, you will miss it. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1, 2, and 3. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Never in the history of Judaism did this happen. You see, if there was a leper and the leper touched anybody, the anybody became unclean. In this case, and the Bible is specific when it says Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. And when Jesus touches the leper, not only did Jesus not become unclean, the leper became 
clean. Adam and Eve were perfect human beings. Perfect human beings. In the Garden of Eden, they were seeking after God, but they started to seek after themselves and they sinned. So God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, away from his presence, outside his presence. And so several millennia later, Jesus had to come and come outside the city, if you will, so that we can be brought into his presence. So in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 11 and 12, it reads, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we now have access continuous access into the presence of God. One of my favorite pictures in the last couple years, and I will end with this, is this picture of Meghan Markle, age 15, outside Buckingham Palace. And 20 years later, she is inside Buckingham Palace as a permanent resident. Money cannot get you permanent residency inside Buckingham Palace. Fame cannot get you permanent residency inside Buckingham Palace. Success cannot get you permanent residency inside Buckingham Palace. How on earth did Meghan Markle get permanent residency inside Buckingham Palace? You see, she got into a relationship with a son of the palace. The only way we can get into the heavenly palace is by getting into a relationship with the son of the palace. I'm going to give an opportunity for three groups of people to respond to this sermon. Firstly, if there is anybody who is with the old being, you can pray in a minute with me. Secondly, is there a progressive difference between you and a non-believer? If not, it may be that you are following the desires of your flesh and not the desires of the spirit that go opposite. And thirdly, what is preventing a continuous fellowship with God? Are there time killers in your life that you need to cut out? If there's anybody here who's never invited Jesus into your life, you can pray this prayer after me. If this is a prayer that comes from the bottom of your heart, God will answer it. The Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, behold, the new has come. You can pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner at the core. And I have a problem of being, and my being is sinful. Thank you for your life. Thank you that you are the one that stopped the uncleanness of the being. Thank you for your death and your resurrection that gives me access into the presence of God. I ask you to come into my life and to make me complete. Help me to live a life that is pleasing to you. Help me to live a life that is contrary to the flesh, but in line with the Spirit. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.